I read something recently that haunted me. It was a quote from a pastor of a church that was, by the world's perspective, very successful. It was growing and a lot of good things were happening there. This is what that pastor said. He said, I'm pretty sure a smart, productive atheist could do my job well. What he meant was that the success that they were experiencing as a church really could be, all of it could be explained by, uh, in, in terms of, of human abilities. He concluded that people that, that, were, that were strong in rhetoric and led confidently and cast vision effectively and were able to think strategically could basically do what they were doing in the church and see similar results. Uh, he was recognizing the fact that there, there wasn't a dependence on God there and that they really didn't even have to believe that God existed in order to uh, see some of the things that they were seeing. And that story haunted me because I don't want to be that pastor. And at the same time, I probably have more in common with him than I realize. In fact, I think all of us do. We may rely on our own abilities and think that we bring more to the table than we actually do. And that's why our passage today, as we jump in here in just a moment into John 15, is it's a great reminder, it's a great wake-up call for us uh, to remember that even if we have earthly success, you know, if we're able to create things and make things happen on our own and because of our giftedness or our abilities, even if we're able to have earthly success, our souls are eternal. And there is nothing we can do, especially in the spiritual realm, on our own. John chapter 15 reminds us of this. I want you to open your Bible with me as we continue on in this series called The Way of Weakness. We're uh, just talking about the fact that uh, greatness as defined by Jesus is a path of humility, a path of service, a path of, of weakness and surrender. John 15, starting in verse 1, says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples." God used the vine as a symbol of his people throughout the Old Testament. In fact, in Psalm 80, verses 8 and 9, he talks about Israel being a vine that was transplanted from Egypt and, and was planted in a new land where it took root and it grew and it filled the land. Sometimes, quite honestly, the references to Israel as the vine of God are not always in a positive sense. But there's a lot of background and history of the people of God, the, the nation of Israel, identifying themselves as a vine. In fact, when Herod rebuilt the temple starting around 19 B.C. and been destroyed a couple of times, and 
and uh, he was rebuilding or, or really more enlarging and improving the temple. One of the things that he did was put a massive gold vine around the front of the temple. And I found a picture because sometimes it just helps to have an image in our mind. This is from a longtime archaeologist named Lean Rittmeyer. You can go ahead and put that up there. That'll, that'll give you some idea of what the front entry to the temple would have looked like. So they had this gold vine with the grape clusters around it and the leaves and, and all of this. And uh, it, it became just part of, of worship or part of what they would do that sometimes people would bring uh, little clusters of grapes or leaves or things like that that were made of gold. And the priests would then take them and add them to that vine that was on the front of the temple. It also was recorded that sometimes they would engrave the names of people who were extremely generous on the leaves. and You can imagine that this really became a distraction. What was intended to remind the people of the fact that they were the vine really became something other than uh, what it was intended to be. And so it's in the backdrop of, of that type of situation that Jesus uses this phrase, I am the true vine. They, they were used to this artificial vine, this gold vine that they saw whenever they would go to worship. But Jesus said, I am the true vine. And he was reminding them and basically saying to them, if you would put as much effort into worshiping me as you do into you know, what you give to this vine, you would bear a lot of fruit. And he was also reminding them of this important truth. Up until that point, the people thought that their connection with God was based on the fact that they belonged to the nation of Israel. So they are part of that vine that belongs to God. And so we connect with God because we are a part of this, this nationality. Jesus says to them, look, I am the true vine. It's not about your nationality. It's about are you coming through me? I am the only way to be able to connect with, with God. And he became that true vine for them. And then he goes on and he says, I am the vine. And he says, my father is the vine dresser, which is an interesting image there. He's the, the gardener, the one that's going around caring for the vine. That's a very hands-on job, isn't it? The vine dresser, I mean, you have to know where, and we'll get into pruning, talking about pruning here in just a moment, but you have to know exactly what to do where. It's hands-on. When uh, we one of the places that we had a chance to, to go over sabbatical, uh, we were staying at a, at a resort. And a lot of families there, a lot of young kids there. And one of the things that really hit me in a positive way, and it kind of surprised me a bit, but I loved it. I saw a lot of dads really interacting with their kids. You know, I saw them um, doing stuff with them and being encouraging to them and saying very kind things to them. And it's kind of crazy that that surprised me. Because so often what you see is sometimes the dads aren't quite as maybe intimately involved or have that more tender side with their kids, you know. And I love seeing that. And I think that is in our culture beginning to shift, which is a very good thing. I see that in a lot of, of our men of Gateway, by the way, that you are those great dads that are invested heavily in your kids and you're involved in their lives. That's so, so very important. I was encouraged to see that. But it, it, when I read this passage, it reminded me. Our father, who is the vine dresser, is so intimately involved in the lives of his children. So much so that he's going around and inspecting and, and uh, pruning and doing the things that, that need to be done. He knows us so well, so intimately. 
And, you know, I, I know you probably heard this and you may know this. Sometimes we just need to be reminded of what's true. Our God wants to have that type of a, of a close and personal and intimate relationship with us. Just like a, a good father, or for that matter, a mother who would be just really involved in the lives of their kids. That's who God is. And if you don't know God in that type of a personal way, if maybe it's more theoretical or you, know, you believe the facts, but there's no real intimacy in your relationship, my, my heart breaks for you. And one of my desires is that just through the things that we're talking about here in John 15, that God would give you a glimpse into what it can mean to know him more personally. And uh, that's, that's his desire for each of us. One of the things that, that really stands out to me as I read this verse, of course, it's that, that Jesus is the vine, the Father is the vine dresser. But also notice in verse 1, um, we're not even mentioned. And then in verse 2, he starts talking about the branches. But it's really clear, isn't it, that this the, the point, the central figures of what Jesus is talking about are the vine and the vine dresser. It's the son and it's the father. It's not us. We are not the central figures in the story. It's really about who God is and then we find our value as branches that are connected to him. So we're not the center of attention. And frankly, sometimes we think we are. You know, We probably wouldn't be brash enough to just come out and say it like that, right? But just by the way we think and by the way we live, I mean, sometimes we tend to think that life is kind of all about us. And this is a good reminder. We aren't the central characters in the story. Jesus and the Father are. Now, let me ask you a little little question here. Just take a little poll real quick. How many of you have ever been to see the promise in Glen Rose, Texas? Let's, Let's see hands. Anybody that's seen that? Okay. Shocking to me, we need to do a church trip because I asked this of the staff and none of the staff had done it. Like, I need to take the staff to go see The Promise. The Promise is a, it's a wonderful passion play uh, that they do in Glen Rose. And I really would highly recommend it. It's done well and it tells, you know, just kind of the story of the life and death, uh, crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus. Now here's a second part to that trivia there. Did you all know that one of your staff members at Gateway has been in the promise. Do y'all know that? Okay, so here you, you got to just, who is it? Here's the question, and I, I'm just going to let you guess. If, if, you, if you know, you know. If you don't, you know. Who was in the promise? Anybody know? How well do you know your staff? That's the question. Everybody's stumped a little bit. Okay, the answer is Emily Waldrop. Emily, when she was a kid, was in the promise, they used to have, the, the, the way the, the play was set, I think, from what I understand, they've changed the intro now. And I actually would like to go see it and see how it is now. But it used to be a grandfather telling a story to his grandkids. Emily was one of those grandkids. And she was in the promise uh, doing that, you know, just, uh, it's every Friday, every Saturday for a summer. And, and she did that, which I think is pretty cool. Here's the thing. If Emily were to, to tell us, I was in a play that was all about me. I was the central figure in this musical, you know, and everybody came to see me. That wouldn't be true. And she knows better than that. She would never do that. The central figure in that play or that musical is Jesus, right? Everybody knows that. 
And it would be absurd for somebody else to think, oh, it's all about me. Just as it would be completely absurd for us to think, you know what? Life is all about me. No, it's really not. It's about the vine. It's about the vine dresser. And as, as we stay connected, um, then that's where we find our value. But it says that, that one of the things that, that our father does is that he prunes. Verse 2, you know, the branches that do not bear fruit, it says he takes them away. But the branches that do bear fruit, he prunes. So if you are a fruit-bearing branch, you can expect that the vine dresser is going to prune you at some point in time, regularly, actually. I learned a little bit. I didn't know much about pruning. I still don't, but I just read up a little bit. Here's one of the things that I learned I did not know. One of the reasons they prune is because if the, the vine is left on its own, it will just spread and kind of go crazy. And will begin to produce a lot of clusters, so, so many clusters of fruit that it won't have the capacity to bring that fruit to maturity, right? So if you don't prune the branches, you're going to have all kinds of fruit everywhere, but it's going to be little tiny fruit that's, that's not well developed. Anybody ever eaten one of those little bitty tiny grapes? You know what I'm talking about? I see your face. You're like, yes, I know you have because I see the face. It, they're horribly sour, right? You don't, if you ever see a little bitty tiny grape, that's probably not going to be the one that you want to go for. The grapes that are large and well-developed are the sweet ones. So the question is, would you rather have two pounds of little tiny sour grapes or one pound of big sweet grapes? Pretty simple answer to that, right? Give me the one pound, less quantity, but the quality is much better. Our Father is not interested in us just, you know, putting out as many branches as we can and as many clusters as we can if we're not producing quality fruit. And so he comes in to prune for the purpose of let's get some really good fruit produced here. I wonder if it's possible that some of us aren't producing large, sweet fruit because we just have too many branches. Because there's just so much going on. There's just no way to be able for everything to to. to um, to mature the way that it's supposed to. And so God comes in and, and he prunes. And here's the part that gets difficult. It's one thing if God comes after you, you know, and he's going to cut some things out of your life. And he's coming after sin in your life. We all get that, right? It's like, okay, I understand that. I know that this sin needs to be cut out. It may not be fun and pleasant. I may not want to let go of it. But at least I understand it. But when God comes after us with the pruning shears and he's coming after a part of our life, then we're like, wait, wait, wait. This is not a bad thing in my life. This is not sinful. In fact, I like this. This is meaningful to me. That can be hard, right? You ever had that happen? Where God pruned a part of your life that you're like, wait a minute, why did you do that? And it might actually seem cruel at the time. Why in the world would God, this isn't wrong in my life, it's not a sinful thing in my life, and yet God cut it out. Why would he do that? Can I just remind us today that God knows, he sees the big picture. He's not cutting things out of our lives to be cruel. He's cutting things out of our lives because he sees that things need to be pruned and he recognizes that we will bear more fruit once he cuts things out. 
It kind of reminds me of Hebrews 12.1. It says, we talked about 12.2 last week actually, but the verse right before that says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. That everything that hinders, that makes me think of pruning. It's not the same as the sin that entangles, okay? There are things in our lives that just keep us from being able to run with perseverance. And God needs to cut those things out so that we can bear fruit in other, other parts of our lives. Yes, it is painful, and sometimes we may not want it, but I just want to remind us, there is a purpose behind the pruning, and that is that God is helping us to produce more fruit. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 3. Already you're clean because of the word I have spoken to you. I think what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, look, we're talking about producing fruit right now, but let's back up and remind you, you're clean because I have spoken the word to you, the the gospel message, which is the message that Jesus, eternal God, left heaven to come to earth, to become one of us, to live a sinless life, and then die a substitutionary death. He died in our place, took the penalty for our sins. He gave his life for us, and then he, he came back from the dead. He, he lives in victory, and we then can be forgiven because of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. That's this word that Jesus was speaking to the disciples. He's saying, look, this, this word has made you clean. Reminded me of James 1.21 where it says, Therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. This gospel message that points us to Jesus. It's not the message itself, but it's the fact that it points us to Jesus. It can save you. Not, not that it automatically does, but it, it points us in that direction that if we respond in faith and put our trust in Jesus, then we'll be saved. And I think what he's saying here is, look, I've already told you who I am. You've already been made clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. But, but then the, the story doesn't end once we come to faith in Christ. It continues on, right? In verse 4, So abide in me, and I in you, which again is remarkable, isn't it? Not only is he saying, I want you to abide in me, but I'm going to abide in you. It's a two-way street, this abiding thing. Reminds me of what Jesus said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Jesus, he abides in us. He's not like anxious to get away, right? Like, I'm tired of you, I'm going to get away from you. No, he abides, and we are to abide in him the word abide means to tarry or to continue to be present and it goes both ways church family the most important thing we can do after we come to faith in christ is to learn to abide i mean yes first is salvation we we have to start there we have to lay that foundation but once we come to faith in christ the most important thing we can do is to learn to abide it's not, you know, how do I serve effectively and how I do all these things. And, you know, all of that, that's the fruit. But it's the abiding in Christ that allows us to produce the fruit. We have to learn to abide. And it, that's hard to do because we live in a culture that values productivity, right? Values doing things. In fact, so many of us, like, I'm convinced that many of us gather our self-worth from how busy we are. Yeah, you ever have a conversation with somebody that's like, oh, I'm so busy. I'm doing this and doing this and doing this. And we value that because that means, you know, you're doing all this stuff. That must mean that you're a valuable person, that you're contributing a lot. And, and yet I read the scripture and what it says is abide. It doesn't talk about, you know, 
just do all this stuff. I mean, yeah, that, that, that's the fruit that comes out of it. But we need to abide. And the only way to produce real fruit is by abiding in the vine. But here's the thing. We can produce artificial fruit that looks pretty real. In fact, I have a little prop, sweetheart. If you don't mind, bring that, bring that to me. I left this at home, so uh, Sean saved the day once again when I was like, can you bring this up to me? I forgot about it. Thank you, dear. I appreciate that. Um, so this is a, a piece. This is an apple, if you can't tell. So here, this is an apple that um, Sean and I remember the story differently. So I'm going to tell it my way because I'm the one on stage. So here's how I remember the story is that she was mixing artificial fruit with real fruit. She's like, no, I don't think I did that. I think it was all artificial fruit. But I'm like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remember it this way. One way or another, this apple was in a fruit bowl on our island at our house. And Sean's dad was in for a visit. And um, he sends a text to us. Or to her, probably asking the question, baby, who puts fake fruit in a fruit bowl on the island? Because I don't know if you can see this very well. On the back are the teeth marks where he just bit <laughs> right into the fake fruit, right? This app, I mean, it, it's pretty impressive, actually. I'll just say it looks real. And he picked it up and tried to take a bite out of it and realized real quick this isn't the real deal, right? We can produce, here's the, the crazy thing. We can produce artificial fruit that looks real. We can, especially, I mean, if you, if you, you know, you, you know the, the, the right things to say and you know maybe the church lingo and you know where you're supposed to be seen and what you're... We can look like we're producing fruit when we're not. But Jesus said that if we are going to produce real fruit, the only way to do that is to abide in Him. I want to encourage you to be creative in how you go about abiding. You know, figure out what that looks like for you. Um, maybe for some, and, and most of my life it's been that I'll get up in the morning and you know, set aside time with God. And um, For others, it, it, it might look different. For some of you really weird people that actually come alive at night, maybe you want to do that in the evening before you go to bed. But... You know, maybe it's throughout the day. Maybe it's taking time and there's a way that you can do that at a lunch break or whatever else it is. But just finding time to abide is, is so very important. And, you know, um, there are a lot of different ways that, that we can go about doing that. I read a book over sabbatical that I thought was great. It's called Sacred Pathways. And I actually put the link to it in our online notes. But um, in this book, he talks about what they've identified as nine different ways to basically abide is what he's talking about but to connect with God and and you know absolutely there are some fundamentals like scripture and prayer and things that all of us should incorporate into part of our abiding but the point is that might look different for everybody for example he talked about the, the two that kind of stood out to me uh, more than any one is being outdoors there are some that you know just being in creation and seeing the beauty of God's creation helps them to be able to connect with God in a unique way that's true for me and one of the others is um, getting alone is is a way to do that and so sometimes I need that opportunity to do that as well um, and others connect in different ways but I, I would encourage that resource but mainly my my point is this figure out how you can go about abiding in the midst of daily life, right? I mean, I discovered that 
There are a couple of really, really good hiking trails that are like covered in the woods within 15, 20 minute drive of here. Um, for me, I'm like, okay, I've found something new. That's something that I can do, go out and maybe get a little exercise, but just kind of talk and be with God and enjoy God's presence being outside. I don't know what that looks like for you, but I would encourage you, be creative. You know, Even if you're in a, a, a season of life, you know, maybe it's young kids at home and everything's crazy and work's crazy and family's crazy and it's like, how in the world am I going to find time? Well, just be creative. You know, if you have a, a commute to work, maybe use that time. If you don't commute to work, maybe use the time that you save by not having to drive. Uh, but find ways to just be with God. And if you're feeling spiritually stuck, do something different. I mean, so, you know, I, I don't know about you. I tend to be a creature of habit. I kind of do whatever it is. I, I, I tend to do a lot of the same things over and over again. If, if it's not working... Try something different, even if it is, maybe just a fresh enough. Try something different. Just find some other way that you can connect with God and, and find a way to abide in Him. Uh, the result of that, it says, is that we will bear much fruit. And then He reminds us of this truth. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Did you notice that? Apart from me, you can do nothing now, this is where what Jesus says really contradicts what our culture tells us. Because our culture says, you know, put your mind to it and work hard. You can accomplish anything you want to accomplish. And I understand what that means. And, and it's actually true from that perspective. There are a lot of things that we're able to accomplish. But, I mean, how do you look at all the advancements that, that are happening and say, apart from him, we can do nothing? I mean, just one example of that, uh, AI. You know, if you're following all the artificial intelligence stuff, and I know very, very little about it. A lot of you know a whole lot more about it than I do. Um, aside from the conversation, which, by the way, is a legitimate conversation of whether the ethical side to that and is it a good thing for society, is it not, that's not my point right now. My point right now is just to say, look at the capabilities of, of what AI brings. And I saw a report recently, it was talking about um, protein mapping. Apparently there are 200 million proteins, and the idea of mapping all of them, which helps with, you know, um, creating vaccines and med all kinds of stuff that go along with that. There was no possible way to map all 200 million proteins because it took a PhD five years to do one. Okay, that was kind of the rule of thumb before. There was a company that spent about four to five years creating an AI program that mapped all 200 million proteins in less than a year. Now, uh, you look at something like that, and you say, how in the world could we make a statement? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Let me tell you how. Because as valuable as those things are, and I'm all for if we can make people's lives better and if we can make advancements and medicine and all that, we ought, to, we ought to do that. I believe that we should. If you can do it in an ethical way, that, again, is another part of the conversation. But here's the point. We are spiritual beings at the core. And no matter how many advancements we can make in other areas of our lives, there is nothing we can do to produce spiritual fruit by our own efforts. And if we are just killing it and everything else and yet not addressing the core 
of who we are as spiritual beings, we're a lot like the fool that Jesus described in Luke chapter 12 when he said he, he was so successful as a farmer, he had so much food that he said, I need to tear down my barns and build bigger ones so that I can store up food and I can take it easy and just eat, drink, be merry and not have to worry about anything. And Jesus said, you're a fool because this very night your life will be demanded of you. Then what will happen to all this excess, everything that you've worked for? Verse 6 reminds us that branches that don't stay connected to the vine are thrown away. They're, they're burned. And by the way, this I don't believe is a, um, speaking to salvation here. I think it's talking about the fact that we become useless in the kingdom of God. That's the bad news. But listen to verse 7 as we wrap things up. This is the encouraging news I want to end on. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. And it will be done for you. Isn't that amazing? If we get to a point of understanding, I can't do it on my own. I can do nothing apart from Jesus. But if I'll abide in him, I have direct access to the God of the universe. I can ask things of God. And whatever I ask, if I'm abiding in him and his words are abiding in me, he says, I'll give you whatever you ask for. Now, as you might imagine, that verse can really be taken out of context and become quite dangerous if it's taken out of context. He's not just saying, you know, whatever wish you have, I'm your genie in the sky that was going to give you whatever you want. He's very clear. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish. Because you know what happens when he's abiding in us and in his, his words in us and we're abiding in him? What happens is his desires begin to be my desires. And if I'm asking God for something that he already desires to give me, of course he's going to grant that request. So we have that opportunity to bring everything to him. And then verse 8, listen to how it wraps it up. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You see, when, when we're bearing real fruit, we're not bringing the fake fruit out. Like, okay, God, this is what I can produce on my own. No, we're bearing real spiritual fruit. That is a work of God through us. And when people see that, they'll be pointed toward God. And God will be glorified by us bearing real fruit. But that only happens when we abide. So my question for you is this. How are you doing with abiding? How's it going? Are you abiding in Him? Or could it be that, you know, maybe you know Him. Or maybe you don't. But even if you do, maybe, you know, it's like if I'm being honest, I, just, I struggle to abide. And today, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to figure out what is one step that I can take toward abiding in Him. Okay, Not how do I go out and run a marathon of abiding tomorrow, but how do I go out and take one step in the direction of abiding more intimately with Him. That's what I want to encourage you to do today. In fact, we're going to have some time here in just a moment after I pray where I'm just going to give us a few minutes to abide. And our team's going to come and they're going to, they're going to lead us and, and, and just kind of, uh, again, worship a time of expressing our gratitude to God and who He is. But we're just going to use this time to say, Lord, would you help me to connect with you in a deeper, personal way? Help me to learn what it really looks like to abide. Let's pray. God, it's, it's hard for us, I know maybe I should just speak for myself. It's hard for me with so many things going on and, 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 and distractions and important things 
serving you and, and being about your work. But even that, Lord, sometimes can take me away from abiding in you. Lord, my prayer today is that you would teach me and teach us what it means just to simply abide and rest in you. And Lord, over these next few moments that we have together, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit is so evident and we just sense your presence here in our midst today as we learn to abide. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.